maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the show today, Camille Ahmed. The journalist and author discusses his experiences reporting on the genocidal ethnic persecution of the Rohingya people in Myanmar. What does it mean for an entire people to be living in exile? That's the question being asked by Camille Ahmed's recent book, I Feel No Peace. He joined Carl Miller recently to talk about it. Carl is research director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos and an author too. Here's Carl with more. Connor, thank you, everyone. Very, very warm welcome from me as well, of course. Hello to this Intelligence Squared Plus event. So I'm delighted to welcome our guest tonight, Camille Ahmed. He is a journalist at The Guardian, where he covers international development. He's previously lived and reported from Jerusalem, Bangladesh and Turkey. And his first book, which we'll be discussing today, of course, is this. It's I Feel No Peace. Let's just begin with the whole genesis, Camille, of, of this book and, 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 and your journalism. So when did you decide that the Rohingya was going to be kind of one of the things that you really looked at and spent so much of your time trying to cover and, and grow to know? I think it's quite kind of intertwined the, the start of my career and me wanting to kind of cover the Rohingya. I was at university and I think I was watching TV and it was Al Jazeera, I think, who used to be one of the few who covered a bit about the Rohingya. And it was just very striking to me when I saw these people who I'd never heard of, an ethnic group I'd never heard of, but who are arriving on the borders of Bangladesh and spoke a language very similar to, especially like my my region's dialect of Bengali, which is more Eastern. Yet I also couldn't understand it. And I was kind of intrigued 
by these people who who uh seemed similar but also I just never heard of it were also at the same time very strange to me um very kind of new to me and I think also it was a time when I was already becoming I studied history so I was becoming very interested in kind of what happened with the borders of kind of colonial times and the post-colonial times and the peoples who lay on either side of these borders um and the Rohingya kind of really fit into that I, th- I think they were a community who were kind of excluded they, they there's a much they f- their place in history is much more complex than someone a group who migrated or who were here or there and it doesn't fit into our modern concept of borders because kingdoms and sultanates and empires all moves those borders around them and it it just became something that very interested me and especially because there wasn't something that was being covered much and I, I realized that once a couple of years later when I got into journalism it still wasn't being covered much there was there was at that time big I think still already talk of genocide especially after 2012 um, kind of intercommunal riots in in Sitwe, the capital of Rakhine State, where they're from, and it was just very kind of s- striking that a people could face so much violence and systematic kind of exclusion from their from their country, and it it really didn't make any impact on the news agenda, and I think what I wanted to do in journalism very maybe very idealistically was like to to take up stories that weren't the ones on the front of the agenda i think if someone once called me like patron saint of lost causes yeah so like it, that's kind of how it all started and with it pretty early on i started off by editing stories for other people um i i quite quickly became a south asia editor at my first job um, and so I, I was kind of commissioning people to write. And then by, by 2015 was when I was actually reporting myself. And kind of in, in an age of kind of 800 word hot takes and churn and newswire, like it so struck me how what you've presented in this book are these kind of extremely long form, kind of deeply immersive stories of people that you've clearly got to know very well over a long period of time was did you set out at the very beginning to do that kind of journalism Camille to go there to get to know them to almost live with them it it seems at times and 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 travel with them to kind of bring that story back uh in that way yeah I think so I I think what happened is in 2015 there was the like what they call the boat crisis the the discovery of mass graves in Thailand which kind of forced a light onto the boat trafficking that have happened for years between Bangladesh and Myanmar, kind of the Bay of Bengal region. So jointly Bangladesh and Myanmar to Malaysia. Uh, But it happened through Thailand. It was a very complex system. And in these trafficking camps, people had been dying and they'd been putting them into mass graves. And that, that discovery forced Thailand to act, even though for years there had been, uh, reports of people dying at sea boats capsizing or boats being pushed back and it kind of just that was it it was reported and nothing else happened um there was not much digging deeper so the the 2015 boat 
boat crisis kind of forced the light on that. But while most people, Bangladesh doesn't have many kind of English language reporters who are fraught, who aren't Bangladeshi, who aren't working for Bangladeshi media. Um, and so who, who don't report for, to an international audience, apart from a few for the wires who, who do, they do wire uh, stories. They, they have to move with their agenda um, and have little time for kind of in-depth reporting. So 2015 brought me there. I was one of the few who was able to go to the Bangladeshi side and see the camps at a time when a lot of people don't realize camps exist, existed, but actually had possibly around 150,000 people. And I learned a lot from a guy called Nobby, who's like kind of crops up throughout the book, who really was like the first person to really introduce me into what life was like for someone who was a few years old when he left Myanmar in the early 1990s, settled in Bangladesh and ever since then has lived in Bangladesh and has not been, has not been able to return to Myanmar, has not been able to be resettled to any other country and has just lived in a refugee camp for 30 years. And I really did, it took me until 2017 to actually go back again, even though I, I, but the idea of the book started then at a time when people's eyes glazed over when I mentioned the Rohingya. Um, like I, I wanted to do the book and I started doing the archival research then. And I was in constant, like, well, regular contact with Nobby um, over kind of messaging apps until I had the chance to to go back. What, what happened as well is like, I, from Bangladesh, I moved to Jerusalem, so I, I couldn't so easily go after 2015. But yeah, I, uh, when the big massacres, the big military operation happened in 2017, which sent about 700,000 to Bangladesh, it suddenly became something people recognized as, a, as an issue but they, they thought of it as a new issue. And I think that's why I wanted to challenge that idea that it's a new issue, that the camps were new, that that this, what is now the world's biggest refugee camp didn't exist before 2017. And I felt like to do that, I needed to spend time with people. I needed to make regular trips uh, and kind of follow stories. And I think what happened is it always felt like unless lessons were learned, what had happened to people like Nobby, the, the older generation of refugees uh, who had been there in Bangladesh almost 30 years at that point, now more than 30 years, the, the kind of deprival of education, the the trafficking that of them, the violence against them, the use of them in kind of by kind of drug gangs and all sorts of com- criminals who, who needed cheap labor expendable labor would happen again. And I think that it's starting, we're seeing signs of it now. So let's, let's go all the way back, Camille, for a second. Um, t- take us into this, this kind of land which kind of transcends or avoids this kind of borders of nation states and empires. What, what is Rakim like or Arakan or that whole area? Um, where, 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 kind of what's it like to live there and and the people that have lived there that have crossed all these borders um what what, where can we trace their origins back to i think part of what i try to do is challenge the idea of tracing origins uh because i think it's the kind of question about the rohingya is where are they from 
And there are lots of theories about were they labourers brought by the British on trains to to harvest rice in Rakhine State, uh, or did they come? Were they bung just Bangladeshis who came like during the nineteen seventy one? Uh, independence war who fled to Myanmar and just stayed and then started claiming another name. Th th there's so many theories about how they're kind of infiltrators from elsewhere. Um, which is why I think the borders are important because if you look at the River Nuff, which is kind of the main, the majority of the uh, a massive part of the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar is this river, uh, especially in the Cox's Bazaar region. It's not very big. Like you, you, you'll go there and see it's really not very wide. So I think the idea that people didn't cross it during history, that they were static, that there was one type of people called who were Bengalis on one side, on the other side, there were a completely different type of people is unrealistic. And so what you have in history is the Bengal kind of kingdom, the kingdom of Bengal and the kingdom of Arakan, as it was then known. It, it's being now called Rakhine. Um, and they were at times friends and they were at times at war and they would take land from each other and the border would shift. At one point, the borders of Arakan were all the way up to Chittagong, which is like one of Bangladesh, Bangladesh's second city, um, the major port. So it, these things have shifted massively over time and through history. And with that came a lot of population movement. There were, when Bengal held influence over the Rakhine state after it helped one of the Rakhine kings reconquer land that he'd, reconquer a kingdom that he'd been kicked out of before. It had its advisors in the court and its advisors kind of contributed to poetry and all sorts of, and literature. And even like if there were coins that had kind of, Islamic or Arabic script on them. The the linkage between the two places is massive. And actually the linkage is, was in many ways strong, as strong or stronger than between Rakhine State and, and the Burmese kingdom at that time, which only took over Rakhine State very shortly before the British did. Um, and then remained under British control until the independence of Burma from Britain. So it's just been such a fluid border and so much movement of people, even, even that Rakhine, there used to be Rakhine pirates who together with the Portuguese used to kidnap Bengalis from the kind of Bay of Bengal and sell them as slaves in in the Rakhine capital at the time. There's just been so much kind of movement of people, which I think the real problem is now suddenly independence happened and we pretend that people were where they were, were where they always have been. Uh, and that anyone who doesn't seem to fit in came from somewhere else and has infiltrated. I mean, you see in, in Bangladesh, there are quite a lot of Rakhine, ethnic Rakhine people who are full citizens of Bangladesh.
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So to tell us about the kind of post-independence years so so how did Myanmar always the kind of regime always believe that the Rohingya were as you said kind of interlopers or or kind of infiltrators from Bangladesh is that is is is, is that idea as old as the state itself there's a little bit of tension at the beginning because what you have is that that's a front line between British forces and Japanese forces and so there there's this idea that Rohingya had sided with the British and the Rakhine had sided with the Japanese and that the British had offered, had kind of promised the Rohingya their own state. Um, and so there is a little bit of tension, but it's not really that significant. There's a small group who are fighting for some kind of independence or autonomy. And so that does lead to military operations in the early years. And, which, and that does also lead to some exoduses of Rohingya to Bangladesh, or it was East Pakistan at the time. Um, but... Overall, they are far more a part of the state in those early years. Well, to a certain extent. I mean, those living in kind of sit where the capital are and those who are able to, they are able to study in all parts of Myanmar and teach. Um, there's a man I met who's like in, in the camps a few years ago who's like more than people say he's around 100 years old who who was teaching at like a religious institute in the capital, uh, even up to 1978. So in the early years, they're far more incorporated into the state. And, and Aung San Suu Kyi's father, who's the leader at the time, wants them to, is far more friendly. And the early prime ministers are far more kind of 
open to including them. Uh, and there's the, they have their hour or two on, on Burmese in Rohingya, of Rohingya language programming on state radio. This changes from the 60s uh, with kind of the military, increasingly military rule. And then in 78, there's a, 1978, there's a, the first really big military operation. So in the 60s, they start to lose some of their rights and privileges, like their language is now ex excluded from state programming. But through the 70s, they're still able to go to university, travel around. It, it's around that time that they lose that. And in 78, there's the first big military operation and they call it kind of a population exercise. And what happens is they're terrified because there are so many rumors about people being killed and uh, th there is violence as well, but it's, it's also just such an aggressive kind of move of the military to just kind of sweep into their areas and demand they prove that they belong. And people, and I'm sure in many parts of Myanmar, they wouldn't be able to show you the paperwork. Um, people are just very scared and believe they're being kicked out of the country. And that's really the start. At that point, they still have citizenship, many of them. Well, they, those were papers, but yeah, they, they have the right to citizenship. Um, but they lose that in, in 1982, they're completely excluded uh, from citizenship. And that's, so it's that period in the late 70s and 80s where you really see a change. Okay, so let's jump forwards a bit. So let, let's go to the 1990s now and the, and the camps that have grown up on the, on the other side of the river, camps I, I know <laughs> you, vis you visited at parts. Take, take us into those camps. Like, what are they like? I mean, I, it, it's later, I think, but there's a, there's a quote which stayed with me from your book where, where one tells you, one of your interviewers tell, interviewees tells you, this is not to life, this is just survival. Yeah, I think that's really what the camps, the kind of, camp existence is, they really developed very little since the 1990s. Someone who's been there since 1991, they might have maybe, possibly they've been moved a couple of times, but they basically live where they have since the 90s. The basic frame of their shelter maybe has been slightly upgraded from bamboo and tarpaulin to a little bit of wire and maybe they were able to put a bit of concrete on the floor to kind of protect it from from being becoming mudlogged waterlogged um and put some metal sheeting on the roof it that, that's really the best the best that they've done been able to do they are not allowed education um not not to any kind of real extent there's very very basic primary level education at secondary levels there's very limited services. Um, Bangladesh, which kind of has long had this idea of wanting to prevent so-called poor factors uh, to 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 yeah to avoid having poor factors that would bring more Rohingya has has not allowed that has also not allowed Bengali curriculum because it doesn't want uh, the Rohingya to integrate and kind of to assimilate and claim their Bangladeshis, and so they've been really deprived of the most basic rights. Uh, there's no education, very limited healthcare. Um, they are, the people I talk to, like Nobby, uh, are very regularly quite, quite badly ill um, and don't, 
cannot easily go to a hospital. They can't. They can't travel beyond their camps. They can't work. They they somehow often find a little bit of work, or maybe NGOs are able to give them those who who can work with NGOs. Sometimes get a little stipend, but they're not able to do meaningful work without the risk of being arrested for being beyond the camp. And so it makes it a temporary existence. It, it makes it constantly. They're just trying to survive to find a bit of money to to buy more than what they're given for rations. And you see, like, and there's some in the last couple of years, you've seen so many examples of events that have highlighted why they believe. This is so precarious. Nobby, after 30 years, his home was burnt down in 30 minutes uh, in a fire a couple of, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago. It's, it was just like, I, that, that moment just like really struck me that this is what they've been left to, like to spend your whole, he, he grew up in the camps, his children are now growing up in the camps and their home can kind of suddenly go. Yeah, it, it's really kind of full of these situations. They, they, they talk often about a lost feeling like there's a lost generation, fearing a lost generation, people who are, who are just completely unable to access education, who, who will not be able to, and who will be a step behind in the future, who will not be able to advocate for themselves who will be completely reliant on aid. Uh, being reliant on aid is a real, like, big concern. Um, they are, they're forced to be because they can't work, because they can't go back, but they don't want to be. And, like, the past week highlighted that when WFP cut their food rations by 17% because of a lack of uh, donor funding. And and it said it could cut, become be a bigger cut in the next couple of months if more money isn't given. Because with all the with coronavirus and then Ukraine, funding has massively dropped and been spent to sent to places where uh, the donor countries feel there's more need or well where which their interests are more aligned. Okay, well, we've spoken about Bangladesh, and I'm I'm keen to talk in a moment about the aid community and UNHCR and the World Food Programme and, and the international NGOs. Um, but before that, let, let's, let's talk about Myanmar itself. So we, we've heard from, you know, maybe a ambivalent beginning, this kind of increasing pressure through the 70s into the 90s. And I think we probably need to tackle now, Camille, the, the kind of moments of grotesque and crescendic violence that, that happened in, the, in 2012 going through to 2017. Do, do, do you want to take us into... Um, Chulatoli, the, the the village, and and just give people a sense of what actually happened there. Yeah, Chulatoli is just really like kind of the most striking example. It's it it, it fits a pattern of violence. If it, it what happened in some ways is similar, the pattern of what happened in some ways is some similar to what happens happened in many other villages, but it was also very extreme. There had always been fear of, of this extreme, since 2012, when there were intercommunal riots and, well, yeah, and uh, ma many massacres of Rohingya. And soon afterwards, there was a massacre in a place called Kiladong, in a, a village called Kiladong, which really kind of had a significant impact on kind of Rohingya as collective. They, they feared the massacre in Kiladong, where people were buried in mass graves, would happen again. And in 2017, it did. It happened in many villages. And in Tulatoli, it happened 
to so many people. What had the, it wasn't the first of the villages to to be targeted by the military operation in 2017, which started on 25th of August. Um, and so what had happened is they, they'd been speaking to the local administrator who was from the Rakan ethnicity. And he'd, they'd been thinking of leaving because by that time, tens of thousands of people, maybe already hundreds, hundreds of thousands were already coming to Bangladesh. But he had convinced them that he would not allow violence to happen to them. He, he would protect them. In reality, he was collaborating with the military and organized an attack that left the, the Rohingya residents of Tulatoli completely trapped. And also some people who had fled other villages and sought safety there. And so what happened is the military kind of encircled the village fired at it there's talk which there often is talk about kind of grenade launchers um or rocket launchers being used that in in their houses which are quite basic kind of just tear through and create a lot create fires and a massive amount of fear so that was what many people heard first um and then yeah the, the military come came through and it, it was extremely brutal um not just shooting, but they used machetes. They, and yet everyone, it, everyone was attacked. They, they killed the men, they killed the children and a, a lot of women were raped. Um, uh, yeah, and many, many women were. And so one of them was uh, someone called Momtaz Begum, who, who I interviewed and who has actually been interviewed by many people um, because her story is one of the worst. She managed to survive. She had been locked in a burning house, but managed to survive with one of her daughters. She lost all her other children and her husband. And she, she managed to crawl out and someone found her and carried her into Bangladesh where she was treated and eventually, eventually managed to build some kind of life or just had to get through it. And at first she thought she was by herself. Um, she, she thought she'd lost all her sisters, um, as well as her, as well as her own children and the husband. Um, I actually came to her at a time when she had just found what her younger sister, she, she had just been reunited with her younger sister. He was like kind of sitting in the back as, as we were talking and, um, yeah, we realized that. At first I didn't realize because she was kind of very quiet, but then she started to get involved in the conversation. Um, and it just showed how Tulatoli was just such a kind of, it left such a mark. Even within the camps, they ended up living together often. This kind of, I heard this, I heard someone from another village another area of Rakhine State once saying like how describing as an area that was like, no one really slept well. You heard screams at night. It was like extreme trauma because so many of them lost their family members. They all saw extreme violence. They had to escape by, by kind of swimming across a, a river. They, the, the, and also many people 
it, it was violence that was seen by other villages. Other villages saw it and could see what was happening and fled. Um, there's another woman called Anwara Bergum who lives in a village downstream of Tulatoli, and she'd been to Bangladesh twice before in in 1978 and 1992. Her daughter had, her son, sorry, had died in 1992 because of the cold in the camps. And he, he developed a respiratory illness that wasn't treated. And she, when she was, she was forced back in 92, around 92, when she was forced back, she had actually promised to never go back to Bangladesh. But the violence in Tulatoli was so apparent that she, she just couldn't see herself staying. And it turned out that Tulatoli was really kind of the big, the big one that everyone knows, but there were many massacres. There was Indin, which was the execution of men who, which, and, and burial in Masqueria, which writers discovered and ended up in, their discovery of that ended up into their Burmese journalists being arrested. Um, and there were others. I, I found so many cases of where, yeah, full-on attacks or kind of things where men were called into meetings by the military or by authorities and they were executed. Um, and so then their families, once they realized that had happened, left. Um, it, it, it was just... It's actually most of these stories didn't make it into the book because uh, it's I couldn't it, I could I really couldn't kind of it would be too much it, but the first for the, the the my first kind of trip after twenties in twenty seventeen you just wherever the, everyone had a story um, and some yeah like the it was so so widespread. How do um, you as a journalist cope with all of this? This must just be unbelievably difficult to cover journalistically, I suppose, getting to know all of these people and, and kind of the emotional and kind of social kind of trauma which they have. And I'm sure kind of your, you, you must have felt as well. Yeah, it's difficult. I, but I think it's more difficult if you feel like there's no purpose to it. Um, I think maybe... This actually slightly links to one of your earlier questions about the time I spent with them. I think what I really wanted to do is make sure, I, and I try to do it as much as I can in general reporting, but it's difficult. This was the one time I could really commit to this, is follow the story and follow the people and stick to the people. Because Mumtaz is a really good example of her, her and her sister who, who had a very similar experience were photographed and interviewed a lot, once, by people um, who never came back and never spoke to them again. Uh, and they don't know what happened with any of that. I, I've saw, seen his, Mumtaz's sister Dilda, I've seen her photo on uh, charity ads on billboards in this country, in London. Uh, for a photo taken in 2017 being used in 2021 to fundraise, uh, and I don't think anyone's spoken to her since. I, f I find it so. I've, I, I've, I think what's difficult is when you feel like you're not doing, when you you're just talking to them and not doing anything with it, and just extracting as much as we might think sometimes that we're doing things for a 
we're working towards a good purpose, it also sometimes feels to me that if you talk to someone, get their trauma, get their story, and then move, put it in a quote, package it into a quote, and then move on, is also exploitative. So I've tried to spend more time. I've tried to go back to them, see what's happened with their lives, where have their lives gone since then, and hopefully package it into something that is more, that is deeper, and that does, that is less piecemeal and puts together, my, my aim was to put together a book that gives a better understanding of kind of the systematic issues here that, through their stories, not to, not to just explain it as someone who who visited a few times, but like to actually like show through their stories how things have developed, how how they have gone through so many stages of 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 what of of this kind of refugee process of being a refugee, and like I think the. The camps themselves are almost like a like a character. They almost the camps have developed. They they've gone from being a shelter, a temporary shelter, to something that people have to live in and that make their lives in. And at this point, it looks like indefinitely. And they've gone in in twenty seventeen. Not too many people were thinking of taking journeys to places like Malaysia and jumping on boats. They, they were just happy to be safe. Now people are very frustrated with the life in the camps. They, they've had, they had that period to, to kind of reset, to, to no longer like have to worry about the immediate fear of the, the Myanmar military, but th their lives don't stop there. They can't sit in camps forever. Um, ones where they can't get education, they can't, they're badly fed and they can't travel, they can't work. They're just basically trapped. Um, and so, yeah, I think following that and being someone who comes back and gives them time and like listens, I, th I think that's something that I've tried, I've hoped has a purpose. And I think that's what helps me as well, that I don't feel like I've just come and ex extracted what I've ne needed and left. I just wanted to, you, you touched on it at the beginning of that answer, and that's the international aid community. Um, now, there seems to be kind of snippets in the book where you seem to portray, I don't know, a mixture of exasperation, criticism, whether they're back-channeling with the Bangladeshi government rather than challenging them, or whether they're... Um, introducing kind of market distortions into the local uh, into the local uh, kind of food market and pushing the price of everything up. There seems to be kind of at least moments when it feels like you think that they're doing more harm than good. Um, what, what, stepping back now, I guess, like what's your thoughts on, on um, I guess, both the United Nations and the, and the kind of international NGO sector um, and 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 how they helped or didn't help over this period of time. I think, of course, the UN and the NGO sector played a massive role in saving lives, in feeding people, in giving them shelter. Yeah, and just making people, kind of giving them that safety that they needed at that time. But that's not their only role. And I think that sometimes what's been 
gets seems to get forgotten in a way or brushed over and it's something that come i feel is relevant in a lot of places uh, i work for the global development desk at the guardian i often have stories that relate to the humanitarian sector they also have a responsibility to to ensure safety protection and to ensure that people aren't returned to unsafe conditions and in that they have failed over since 1978 they failed the rohingya the rohingya have been returned twice uh and without any kind of without much say in it they've had their decisions made for them and i think it's really striking when you go to cox's bazaar now because cox's bazaar is a kind of tourist resort for bangladesh as well and they they they're in really really expensive hotels and their staff change over constantly uh there are a few people who are really really committed to it and were brilliant and and made massive differences and were able to develop kind of who were able to help get things beyond the basics who committed to things like making sure they could grow food in their own on their own shelters or that they had access to fuel supplies I, like i think one of the most striking things i didn't realize is before this no refugee response had i was told had ever considered had ever provide provided fuel to refugees um which is why they were walking miles for hours to cut down um trees for wood uh, and obviously with a million people cutting down trees that that forest disappeared very quickly and so that they had to walk even further um it's obviously a very important system and there is a lot of good work done but they have a lot of responsibilities and it sometimes feels like once political considerations come into play once a government not wanting to bear the burden of of, of a large refugee population which it shouldn't by have to by itself but starts putting pressure on and saying that it's going to do this or that that it wants to send people back or that it wants to send them to an island or that these people shouldn't be working or they shouldn't have education or it, they shouldn't be running their own education system that very very rarely does the UN or the humanitarian sector push back strongly enough or at all that they, they often capitulate and it seems that to do one task the basic task of providing food and shelter which is what i think everyone sees what did maybe the general public sees as their purpose to do that they'll often accept quite serious violations of their the rest of their mandate um and i think that's what's happened and that that's that's what i struggle with when i see when i see a rotation of people you, you the spokes people or the the staff you talk about you talk to are constantly changing every time you visit there's a new person in the new role who doesn't know the history who some people genuinely didn't know there were many refugees before 2017 they thought the camps just existed and they were just created um and but i i think there's that quote from the UN's evaluation of of the 1990s repatriations which were involved in a lot of coercion where a UN official said they'll listen to what we say they're primitive people which you'd hope isn't the case anymore that there are people saying that but i have spoken to people from 
who were involved in 2017 operation who say they might not have used those words, but the, the approach wasn't necessarily much different. There is still a kind of patronizing approach from the humanitarian system, which, which does what it, it does the job it needs, but also maybe you could argue as well is kind of, it does what it needs to sustain itself as well. It, it does just enough to get funding and to keep going, but does it actually fulfill its role? And is it respectful and give, does it give dignity to the people it's serving? And I feel like there's a real question about that when the Rohingya, when, when it's participated in forced repatriations. And I think the issue about the forced repatriations and the lack of Rohingya role is not just about dignity. I think it also in practical terms, Rohingya were forced back in 1978. They they came back in the 1990s in larger numbers and they were forced back again. In 2017, they came back in about three times, about three times more people came in 2017. So if you don't solve the problem, it's one, they, they will remain vulnerable. The question is essentially, what would a sustainable, peaceable solution look like in your eyes, I guess? Um, and as, alongside that, should there be, I guess, accountability, criminal, international criminal court trials to prosecute the, the, the Myanmar military and the other kind of participants in, in the crimes that you've, you've told us about today? Yeah, I think international justice plays an important role. There's there is a trial at the International Court of Justice, Courts of Justice in The Hague, on genocide. Um, there's an investigation by the ICC into forced deportation. Both are taking very long. And, I mean, the, the case at the ICC hasn't even started. It's just an investigation still. So, hopefully, they'll pave some way and create some urgency. Um, the US has recognized as now calls it genocide. They, they've moved away from the term. They used to often say ethnic cleansing. They now call it genocide. So we would hope that that changes things. Um, the solution for Rohingya, what Rohingya will like always say is they want, they need citizenship back. They need citizenship restored. What was taken away in 1982 must be restored because they cannot keep living under this kind of apartheid system where they they need, they can't travel beyond their villages. They can't get education. Um, they either, they, they either live under almost complete control in like open prisons in their villages where people still die in healthcare or in, in pregnancy or through all sorts of kind of just through deprivation or and that's in the best case scenario, or they're subjected to extreme violence and they, they need that cycle to be broken and some kind of guarantee. They see citizenship as like really the important way to do that. And they won't accept because in the past it's been kind of, they've been sent back without that being restored. And it's pretty much unanimous among the Rohingya that that has to be, that is in a very important condition. They need to be equal members of society. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, Camille, thank you for thank thank you for I thought a um, extremely harrowing at times, but but very meaningful and and, and important and and kind of poignant um, uh, series of uh, reporting and and journalism and stories that you've you've brought to us today. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you for all your brilliant questions.
Uh, sorry, I couldn't quite get through them all by the end. Uh, the book again is I Feel No Peace, Rohingya Fleeing Over Seas and Rivers. I'm Carmilla, uh, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. 